most Americans understand that the First Amendment protects their free speech from the government. The government can't put you in jail for what you say. The courts can't award a judgment against you for protected speech. But what about private parties? Well, that's something else. As every kid finds out, you don't have a First Amendment right to mouth off at your parents. There's no free speech doctrine to protect you if your significant other dumps you over something stupid you said. And your boss? She could fire you for yelling at her at work. But what if your boss is the government? What then? Is your speech protected, like a citizen speaking out to the state? Or unprotected, like an employee speaking out to an employer? Richard Ceballos is a deputy district attorney in Los Angeles County. And as he found out when he reported police misconduct to his superiors, it's complicated. Springport was not concerned whether or not I did the right thing. It was procedural. It was all procedural. It's like, well, regardless of whether you did the right thing or not, we just don't think you're protected because you're a government employee speaking within the course and scope of your employment. And therefore, you're speaking for the government and the government does not have a First Amendment right. It had nothing to do with whether or not I was doing the right thing. Richard Ceballos discovered a paradox of how First Amendment law applies to government employees. If you're not talking about work, then your speech is protected. But if you are talking about work, your speech is not protected. Confused? Maybe that will make more sense by the end of the episode. I'm Ken White, and this is Make No Law, the First Amendment podcast from popat.com, brought to you on the Legal Talk Network. This is episode three, On the Job. Deputy District Attorney Richard Ceballos worked as a calendar deputy in a courtroom in Pomona, northeast of Los Angeles. As a calendar deputy, he supervised more junior deputy district attorneys working in that courtroom. One day, a defense attorney on one of the cases he was supervising asked him to look into a search warrant the Los Angeles County Sheriff's obtained on the attorney's client. The attorney thought that the warrant was based on lies. Ceballos took it very seriously. You know, after consulting with the, um, the defense attorney, I, I retrieved the file back from the, uh, the deputy, uh, reviewed the search warrant, uh, actually visited the crime scene, I looked at some other documents and evidence that the defense attorney gave to me, spoke to the uh, detective that actually wrote the warrant, and then uh, came to the conclusion that there were some serious issues with the warrant. Richard Ceballos thought that this information was alarming enough to report to his superiors, so he took it to them. 
open. Then I took my concerns to my superiors and advised them that, you know, I thought the uh, the warrant um, had been fabricated or grossly uh, misrepresented. When you went to your supervisors like that, were you worried about what the consequences to you might be? No, not at all. He should have been worried. The first signs of trouble came when the sheriffs found out about his concerns. They uh, quickly demanded that I be uh, removed from the case. They uh, declared me to be uh, a defense attorney, or I think the words of the lieutenant, I was acting like a public defender, and that uh, I needed to be removed from the case. Someone else had to be reassigned, because they had concerns that uh, if the case were to be dismissed, that they would be subject to a lawsuit by the defendant. Sabayos's superiors decided to move forward with the case. The defense attorney filed a motion to suppress the search and subpoenaed Ceballos to testify. That led to more friction. When Ceballos tried to convince his supervisor that the memo he'd prepared about the search should be turned over to the defense. You know, I advised her that the memo that I had prepared was uh, actually Brady evidence since it contained potentially exculpatory evidence, including statements by the detective, and that it needed to be turned over to the defense prior to any motion. And she instructed me that I needed to change it, which I refused to do. She wanted you to change it to make it um, less critical or more stating the sheriff's position? Yes, yeah, to put it mildly, yes. At the hearing, the judge dramatically limited the scope of Sabayos' testimony and denied the motion to suppress the search. Soon after that, the retaliation started. But then after the motion, that's when... I was subjected to what we call freeway therapy, and I was transferred to a, another office location further away from my home. I've heard that term before from cops, too. What is freeway therapy? <laughs> freeway therapy is basically the office uh, way of punishing a prosecutor, or any employee for that matter, by uh, making them drive much further away from where they're normally assigned or would be normally assigned. So you're going to spend an hour or two on the freeway, and this is a form of therapy. Freeway therapy wasn't Sabayos' only option. The district attorney's office, without explanation or justification, gave him a choice. He could turn his 15-minute commute into an hour commute and drive to the DA's office in El Monte, California. Or he could stay in Pomona, but be demoted from handling felonies to handling misdemeanors like a rookie. Ceballos was also denied the promotion to grade four deputy district attorney he was due for. He didn't get that promotion for four years until after a new district attorney took office. But Richard Ceballos was stoic. He probably wouldn't have sued, but for what happened next. I started getting, um, you know, prank phone calls at my home. My house was vandalized by graffiti. My car was shot up with DB guns or a pallet mark. And I think the one, the real incident that kind of turned me and said, I got to do something is I was followed. Uh, one evening by about three sheriff's cars as I was leaving the gym. And they were just 
tailgating me from about a quarter of a mile with their lights off as I drove down the street. And they were positioning themselves in such a way to affect a traffic stop on me. And I just, you know, I just said, oh, they're gonna pull me over and they're gonna do something. And so Richard Ceballos sued the district attorney's office in the person of Gil Garcetti, who was then the district attorney. He sued on the theory that by retaliating against him for reporting and speaking up about misconduct, the office violated his First Amendment rights to free speech and to petition the government. Ceballos wasn't breaking new ground here. In 2000, when he sued, there was already law in his favor. Since 1968, the Supreme Court had held that public employees have some protections from retaliation against their speech. The Supreme Court first came to that conclusion evaluating the case of an Illinois schoolteacher named Marvin L. Pickering. Mr. Pickering wrote a letter to the editor of a local newspaper criticizing how the school board spent the money it got from taxes. As I see it, the bond issue is a fight between the Board of Education that is trying to push tax-supported athletics down our throats with education and a public that has mixed emotions about both of these items because they feel they're already paying enough taxes and simply don't know whom to trust with any more tax money. I must sign this letter as a citizen, taxpayer, and voter, not as a teacher, since that freedom has been taken from the teachers by the administration. Do you really know what goes on behind those stone walls at the high school? Respectfully, Marvin L. Pickering. Mr. Pickering was fired for his trouble. He sued and took his case all the way to the Supreme Court, which held that the dismissal violated his First Amendment rights. The Supreme Court didn't say that all public employees' speech is protected, just some of it, based on a rather vague balancing test. Here's what Justice Marshall wrote for the court. In sum, we hold that, in a case such as this, absent proof of false statements knowingly or recklessly made by him, a teacher's exercise of his right to speak on issues of public importance may not furnish the basis for his dismissal from public employment. At the same time, it cannot be gainsaid that the state has interest as an employer in regulating the speech of its employees that differ significantly from those it possesses in connection with regulation of the speech of the citizenry in general. The problem in any case is to arrive at a balance between the interests of the teacher as a citizen in commenting upon matters of public concern and the interest of the state as an employer in promoting the efficiency of the public services it performs through its employees. That standard didn't give too much guidance to public employers or to courts. The Supreme Court clarified it a bit in 1983 in a case called Connick v. Myers. Sheila Myers, like Richard Ceballos, was a deputy district attorney working for District Attorney Harry Connick, the father of singer Harry Connick Jr. Myers was unhappy about a transfer and circulated a questionnaire soliciting from her colleagues their views on how the office was being run. She was fired. This time, the Supreme Court said that the speech wasn't protected 
because it wasn't on an issue of public interest. Here's what Justice White wrote. Meyer's questionnaire touched upon matters of public concern in only a most limited sense. Her survey, in our view, is most accurately characterized as an employee grievance concerning internal office policy. The limited First Amendment interest involved here does not require that Connick tolerate action which he reasonably believed would disrupt the office, undermine his authority, and destroy close working relationships. Meyer's discharge, therefore, did not offend the First Amendment. So that was the law when Richard Zabaya sued, claiming that his First Amendment rights were being violated by the district attorney's office's retaliation against him for voicing his concerns about that search warrant. The test, the so-called Pickering-Myers test named after those two cases, has two parts. In the first part of the test, a court asks if the speech in question was made by the employee as a citizen on a matter of public interest. If it wasn't, if the speech was just on some internal office issue, then it's not protected. In the second part of the test, the court balances the speaker's interest in their free speech against the employer's interest in promoting the efficiency and harmony of the workplace. So Richard Ceballos thought he had a strong case. His complaint to his superiors, his memo about his conclusions that the search warrant was based on false testimony was quintessential public interest. The public has a very strong interest in police misconduct and in the conduct of criminal cases. But not so fast. The district attorney's office had an argument. They said that the test asks whether you spoke as a citizen on an issue of public interest. And Ceballos didn't. Ceballos spoke as a deputy district attorney doing his job. The trial court agreed and granted summary judgment to the district attorney's office, saying that Richard Sabayos's speech was not entitled to constitutional protection because it was part of his job. The United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit reversed, and the Supreme Court agreed to review the case. The court was clearly troubled by the conflict here between a public employee's right to speak and the need to expose government wrongdoing on the one hand, and the government's need to run orderly workplaces and not have every workplace dispute turn into a lawsuit on the other hand. Justice Breyer expressed that conflict at one of the two oral arguments the court held. In a world where people are leaking things all the time, and uh, there are thousands of things that are in the public interest every day. But what's bothering me is, while I see the government's rule as protecting the interest of the employer, it's very hard for me to believe that never is there an instance where the First Amendment offers protection. But the only choice you've given me is a rule that says every dispute of the public interest is going to go right into constitutional litigation. And I don't like that either. Other justices pointed out that the rule the district attorney was arguing, that speech is unprotected when it's part of your job, would have perverse consequences for some types of public employees, like state college professors. Listen to Chief Justice Roberts getting counsel to admit to just that weird result. What do you do with a um, 
public university professor who is fired for the content of his lectures. It's certainly in the course of his employment, that's what he's paid to do. That has no First Amendment protection? Well, it would be our view that um, if the, uh, the assigned job duties of that university professor was to speak on a particular topic or content, and they were getting paid for doing that, that that is a job-required speech, and that it should not be entitled presumptively to First Amendment protection. Ultimately, the argument about practicality won. And in 2006, the Supreme Court decided, 6-3, to that Richard Ceballos' speech was not protected because he said it as part of his job. Here's Justice Kennedy writing for the court. Ceballos did not act as a citizen when he went about conducting his daily professional activities, such as supervising attorneys, investigating charges, and preparing filings. In the same way, he did not speak as a citizen by writing a memo that addressed the proper disposition of a pending criminal case. When he went to work and performed the tasks he was paid to perform, Ceballos acted as a government employee. The fact that his duties sometimes required him to speak or write does not mean his supervisors were prohibited from evaluating his performance. What swayed the court was the prospect of millions of government employees reacting to every disciplinary decision by asserting that they were being punished for protected speech. Ceballos' proposed contrary rule adopted by the Court of Appeals, would commit state and federal courts to a new, permanent, and intrusive role, mandating judicial oversight of communications between and among government employees and their superiors in the course of official business. This displacement of managerial discretion by judicial supervision finds no support in our precedents. When an employee speaks as a citizen addressing a matter of public concern, the First Amendment requires a delicate balancing of competing interests surrounding the speech and its consequences. When, however, the employee is simply performing his or her job duties, there is no warrant for a similar degree of scrutiny. To hold otherwise would be to demand permanent judicial intervention in the conduct of governmental operations to a degree inconsistent with sound principles of federalism and the separation of powers. The result is odd. It means that Ceballos might have been protected if he'd gone to the newspapers with his conclusions. But because he went through proper channels, he was unprotected. The the Supreme Court decision basically said you've got to be a good employee and honor your, your master, that being your supervisor, regardless of what you've feel or what you believe is occurring in the office, even if you witness corruption, even if you witness abuse, malfeasance, a waste of resources, you really cannot, uh, the only way you're going to be provided protection by the First Amendment is to go public. But what do you risk if you go public? If you are disclosing confidential information that you gather within the course and scope of your employment, Yeah, you'll be protected by the First Amendment if you go public, but you're not going to necessarily be protected from other employer sanctions for divulging that confidential information. So what do you do? You know, faced with that, what are most employees going to do? 
but just to keep quiet. There are whistleblower laws that will protect some government employees who expose misconduct. And some courts have later narrowed the Garcetti versus Ceballos decision. For instance, the Ninth Circuit recently held that the rule didn't apply to state college professors who could not be punished for their classroom speech based on ideological disagreements, even though that speech is part of their state job. But the result is still clear. After this case, if you're a government employee and you want to report misconduct, you have to make a hard choice. Report it inside through proper channels and risk discipline for that unprotected speech, or go outside and risk discipline for that. Would you still today, if you were asked, tell another deputy to do what you did? I, I wouldn't tell a deputy. I would tell them what their options are. I would tell them, you know, um, what the possible consequences are for acting. And I would certainly encourage them to do the right thing, but I, I won't tell anyone what to do because I don't know what our office will do to them. In this series of podcasts, I'll be telling more stories behind important First Amendment decisions. If there's a case you want to hear about or a First Amendment question you'd like answered on the podcast, drop me a line at ken at popat.com. Thanks for listening. You can find documents and cases mentioned on this podcast at popat.com or legaltalknetwork.com. If you liked what you heard today, please remember to rate us in Apple Podcasts and Google Play and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Lastly, I'd like to thank our participants, voice actors, producers, and audio engineers for their participation. My guest, Richard Ceballos. Tom Mile is Marvin Pickering. John Simic is Justice Thurgood Marshall. Gerard Moreno is Justice Byron White. John Talifer is Justice Anthony Kennedy. Producer, Kate Nutting. Executive producer, Lawrence Coletti. And last but not least, music, sound design, editing, and mixing by Adam Lockwood. Excerpts from the oral argument in Garcetti v. Ceballos provided by Oye, a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. See you next time for Episode 4, Disparagement, Contempt, and Disrepute. They actually surprised me by jumping. They pushed me to the ground. They started kicking sand in my eyes, started punching and kicking me, all the while yelling, Jap and gook over and over again. And it wasn't until I snapped and I said, you know what, I'm a chink. Like, if you're going to be racist, at least do it correctly. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, POPAT, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer, please.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.